If you have your Bibles, would you please take them out and today turn in them to the book of Colossians. I feel like this is a big day for us. We get to start a new sermon series. This is something we haven't done in a while, starting a new series. But last time, uh, last time, well, it's been a couple weeks, we finished up the book of Exodus. Uh, we saw how Exodus really finds its conclusion in Jesus, the true tabernacle and the fulfillment of the temple. Last week, Lee was leading us again through Matthew, and today we are beginning a new series through the book of Colossians. So it's about in the middle of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I want to point you to three little things about the book of Colossians before we read our passage. And then for our text, we're going to read uh, the first eight verses and look at two major themes, sort of as an introduction to the book of Colossians today, to look at two of the major themes that Paul develops throughout this letter. But first, I just want to point you very quickly to, to three details that help us understand what Paul is doing. First, look at the very last verse of the book of Colossians. The very last verse, chapter 4, verse 18 I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Remember my chains. That tells us that Paul is writing this letter from prison. Uh, He was imprisoned several times during the course of his ministry. uh, And he's either in Ephesus or Rome. We don't exactly know, but this is what we know. He's sitting in a a prison cell while he's writing this letter. And so look at uh, the first verse of chapter 2. And and he's in prison, so he writes, chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. He is in prison. He's not in Colossae here. He's not at this church. But he says, I have a great struggle, and I want you to know how great this struggle is that I have for you. He doesn't have to be present with them to be ministering on their behalf to be struggling because of them and their struggles. He joins them in that. And he says that the the last part of that verse, chapter 2, verse 1, I have for you, for all those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. So these believers in Colossae, they have not ever met Paul. They've not seen him face to face. This is, is different. Most of the letters Paul writes are to churches that he had planted. This one, he did not plant the church in Colossae. He did not plant this. It was planted probably through his influence in other believers who lived there. But he has not personally been there. And he's writing to a church that he's never visited. That he does not know them face to face. And yet, despite that, despite being in prison, he says, here's what I want you to know. How great is my struggle on your behalf? Have you ever felt that you had a great struggle on behalf of someone who was not with you? That's a a legitimate Christian way of caring for people, whether it's through our prayers on their behalf, through, through ministering to them through letters, as Paul is doing here, or other ways that we can support other believers. Paul is ministering deeply to this church, even though he's not there now and he never has been there. And so this is, uh, this is a fantastic letter. It's, it's a joyful letter. It's a friendly letter in the majority of what Paul has to say. Uh, writing to support this church, to build them up in, in the ministry of Christ, 
to lead them to him. Uh, and and it's, very, it's an easy letter to love. And I hope that as we study it together, you will come to love it if you haven't already. It's an easy letter to love and an easy letter for us to read together, to study as a church, and hopefully to see great growth both individually and corporately through our reading of Colossians. So I want to go ahead and read the first eight verses uh, as our passage for today. So let me ask, if you are able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epiphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray one more time. Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your your perfect and holy word. And we ask now that as we study it together, as we read these verses, and as we think on them, we ask that you would be our teacher, that your Spirit would guide us into truth, that he would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see Jesus in his beauty, in his glory, as our King, as the head of the church, as our Savior, our Redeemer, our Defender, and our Friend. Lord, we ask that you would do this through the power of your Spirit, through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The power of the Gospel and the purity of the Gospel. Those are two of the major themes that we will come back to time and time again as we study the book of Colossians together. The power of the gospel and the purity of the gospel. Paul is arguing in this book for the purity of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. And he argues that nothing else is necessary. You don't need to add other regulations. You don't need to add other revelations, other standards, in order to make the gospel powerful and effective. In order for the gospel to be powerful and effective in saving sinners and in transforming the lives of believers, you don't need to add other things on top of it. He argues that if you do that, that actually undercuts what you're trying to do. The gospel itself is powerful. We might have this uh, common human tendency. I think this is a common temptation that we face to, to look at the gospel and to feel like that is a great starting point. Now, if we can just build up around this and add some other things on top of it, we'll really have something, right? We can really build a ministry on that. We think if we're going to accomplish something of of lasting value, if we're really going to see progress be made, we have to do something else. We have to add. Paul says exactly the opposite. He says if you want to see a ministry, 
in a local church that makes a difference and creates lasting change, and, and by lasting I mean eternally lasting change, you must not add to the gospel. You must not feel like you need to add additional things on top, other regulations. If we as a church were to add to the gospel or take away from the gospel, no matter how good our intentions in that might be, we will be undercutting the power of the gospel to save sinners, to change lives, to give glory to God. So there is uh, the purity of the gospel, that nothing else is necessary. But he also argues for the power of the gospel, and he demonstrates the power of the gospel, insisting that the power and the beauty of Christ and Christ alone is sufficient to make a difference, to change our lives. And again, I wonder if sometimes it's, it's easy for us in the day and age in which we live to sort of domesticate the gospel or to compartmentalize the gospel in such a way that, that we sort of mentally set it aside and when we put it in its own box, its own compartment, and we say, okay, this will be our, our religious faith, this is what we believe, but we sort of keep it over here. And in our minds, the power of the gospel is never allowed to interact with the other parts of our lives in such a way that it can influence them. So the, the gospel might never interact with our, our relationships or our vocational callings or even the, the real struggles that we have, the brokenness that we experience, brokenness in our own families, brokenness in our own character, brokenness in all of our relationships. Somehow we, we've simply... Uh, compartmentalized, or, or the word I'm using in this series is domesticated, right? We've domesticated the gospel in such a way that we simply no longer expect it to do great things. We simply no longer expect that it's going to make a, a radical difference in some of the very practical ways that we live day to day. Power and purity, these two aspects, these two elements that Paul argues for throughout the book of Colossians. I want to introduce these two themes just dive in a little bit deeper into each one of these. First, the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. I believe one of the things we see throughout the book of Colossians is this. Paul develops this theme in such a way that it's almost as though it's, it's calculated to explode some of these little boxes that we put it into. That, that his presentation is designed to do this, to, to not allow us to compartmentalize the gospel, to not allow us to sort of domesticate it and feel like we have got, we've kind of got a, a hold on this. We can keep it over here in the corner without letting it do its job because what Paul argues for is that the gospel truly changes everything. And he's going to develop this in three steps and, and I'm going to show them, we'll get into them more deeply in following weeks, but let me show you the three steps of the gospel, of the power of the gospel in Colossians. First, it is the power of Christ. It is the power of, that's the power of the gospel. It's the power of Christ. And, and we, need to, we need to say this. We need to be explicit about making this the first point because it can be easy for us to, to sort of talk about the gospel. And we talk about it all day long. And it's very important. But after time, it kind of becomes a buzzword. Right? And in fact, you know, one could go to one's local Christian bookstore and, and scan the shelves of the books that are on offer. And of course, there's, there's gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered discipleship, gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered praying. It's gospel everything these days. 
and, and which is as it should be. But again, if it becomes a buzzword, we forget what we mean when we're saying this. Let's not forget what we mean is that Christ is the power of the gospel. The power of Christ is the power of the gospel. And the reason the gospel is such good news is because it is the gospel of Christ. Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what he does for us. And so he develops this. If we look down in, in chapter 1, starting in verse 15, there is, uh, we refer to these few verses here as this Christ hymn that Paul writes in these verses. Chapter 1, verse 15. This, this lengthy section describing the preeminence of Christ. Listen to these verses. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This, this beautiful description, in which he's describing the preeminence of Christ, the glory of Christ, the authority of Christ, don't we, love, don't we need these verses? We need to love these verses where it says that by him was created things like thrones. That's referring to political rulers. And it's saying that Jesus Christ is preeminent and has sovereign control over all of them. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, all of them created by Jesus for Jesus because he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we start with this just mind-expanding vision of the glory of Christ. The glory of Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, who rules over all things. And the reason that there is power in the message of the gospel is because of this, that Jesus is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the living one. And yet this... Jesus is the same one who knows you by name. The same one who calls, who says to you, you are no longer my servants. For a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Here is the power. The power is that Jesus Christ, the living one, says to us, you are my friends. And Paul develops this, that we are united to Christ. We are in Christ, that that we are vitally connected to this preeminent Lord. And the, the reality is going to be that, that when we understand that, when that is true of us, things begin to change. Things in life, in our heart, will begin to change. So we talk about the power of the gospel. I don't want that to become a buzzword. I want, that, I want us to remember and to realize we're talking about the power of Jesus to rule over his church, to rule over his world that he has made. And so first, that's, that's step one. The power is the power of Christ. Second, the power is the power to save. And he says this right afterwards, verse 21, when he begins to talk about our salvation. Verse 21 in chapter 1. 
You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The power of the gospel is first the power to save. The very first thing that will change when you know Jesus is your salvation. That that you will recognize previously, before knowing Jesus, that you were alienated, you were enemies of God because of your evil deeds, but that in Christ, God has done this. Through Christ, God has taken the initiative to reconcile you. Here's the very first change that is made, the first relationship that is repaired is the relationship between you and God, where at first you were hostile towards him, and then he took the initiative to reconcile you. Paul says, the very first verse we read, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, when he introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, we read that. You almost can't start one of the, the letters that Paul wrote without some similar sort of introduction. Paul's always introducing himself in his letters. That's what you do, right? That's convention. But it's still significant. We shouldn't just uh, gloss over these things as though convention means they're unimportant. But Paul is pointing out that he is an apostle by, of Christ Jesus. How? By the will of God. By the will of God. I think he's taking us back there to the story that we studied this in our Sunday school class last week, of his conversion in Acts chapter 8. Right, if you're familiar with the story, you remember these details that Paul was, first and foremost, before conversion, he was a bad dude. Now, he was a persecutor of the church. He was doing evil deeds. He was absolutely hostile to Jesus. And yet, Jesus, in his perfect timing, appears to Paul on the Damascus Road and by the, the revelation of his glory overwhelms Paul. Just overwhelms him with his glory in such a way that Paul's heart was changed. By one sight of the beauty of Jesus, his heart was completely converted 180 degrees. From being this one who was hostile and doing evil deeds to now being fully convinced and seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. He was converted. And I can't help but think that Paul never lost a certain sense of wonder at his own conversion. Not only, you know, he starts all his letters like this, saying he's an apostle by the will of God. Look at verse uh, 23 of chapter 1. Verse 23, the very end of that verse where he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. He references this event so often. That, that I can't help but think he never got to that place where he took his own conversion for granted. He never got to that place where he took his own conversion for granted, right? Because he knew the reality. When he says in First Timothy that he is the chief of sinners, I think he's being sincere because he knew the state of his heart. He knew his own past. And for him to consider who he had been and then to recognize that God, purely of his grace, had converted his heart, drawn him to Christ, and beyond all that, he had even given him this calling as an apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I don't think Paul ever lost a certain sense of wonder and amazement at the grace of God, that the gospel is absolutely powerful to save the worst of sinners. 
And that's Paul's own testimony, and it's many of our own testimony as well to simply say, if God can save me, he can save anyone. That there are simply no hard cases for God in salvation because God deals with them, right? It's just as easy for him to save the worst of sinners. And so as a church, we will not stop praying for our family members, for our friends and neighbors who do not yet know Christ, Because we will not lose this sense of wonder that the gospel is powerful to save because God is gracious to save. So the power is the power of Christ. The power is the power to save. And then finally, we're going to see in Colossians, it's the power also to transform. It's not merely the power to save, but it's also the power to transform our hearts. And a lot of chapter 3 will be on this reality that the gospel of Christ is powerful not only to save, but to transform our lives in the present day, in the here and now. Just like you know, most of our, our theme in Exodus, right? that God is not just freeing a people, but he's forming a people. So he's training, teaching, discipling, shaping us as believers to worship and obey the Lord. Well, it's the same in Colossians. He says it differently, but it's the same thing, that he has power to save and that as he saves, Christ is also forming us, a people for his own possession. That we come into his kingdom, and, and it talks about transferring us, right, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's exactly what happened in Exodus. God transferred his people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, and he was then training them how to live as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. That's what happens in Colossians as well that the gospel is powerful to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, to unite us to Christ. And now, that changes everything. And we're going to talk about how the gospel is powerful to change the way we live, the way we think about the world, the way we think about things like uh, our definition of worldly success, our, our own understanding of vocational calling, our understanding of What really, truly is important in this life? What are the things we should be pursuing? What are those things that the world tells us we should be pursuing, but the the gospel says, actually, that's secondary. All of these things, the the gospel gets into our hearts. And this is why I I call this sermon, and and sort of this is my title for the, the series in Colossians, is that it is the undomesticated gospel. Because the gospel gets into our hearts and it, it simply cannot be trained or set aside or domesticated. It gets into our hearts and has the power to change everything. Which is to say, it's not like my watch. This is what I was thinking about as I was preparing this. This is my watch right here. Um, and I love my watch. This was a gift from my wife. I wear it every day. I love it, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret about my watch. It doesn't work. The, bat- the battery has been dead since November. True story. It's, it's 240. I was say, that's actually really close. Um, but it says 240. It says 240 all day long. And now, I would love to get it fixed. This, this is super annoying. Right? Because I love to know what time it is. I, I'm, I'm just prompt like that. I have to know what time it is. And so this, this annoys me to no end. But you know what annoys me even more? the thought of going into the mall to get a new battery. I don't go to the mall. I hate the mall. So, watch what the dead battery it is. 
I still wear it. I wear it every day. Right? I like it. I'm used to it. It's familiar. It's actually a little bit heavy, so it has this pleasant weight on my wrist. Like even this morning, I, I almost walked out of my room and I was like, wait, watch. My watch was not there and I'm, I, I'm just so used to it. It's just familiar. It feels weird to me to not have it on. It does nothing for me. It hasn't changed or affected anything in the last four months because it's powerless to affect anything. It never causes me to do something I wouldn't otherwise do because it can't, it's dead. But I still wear it. And you know, for some people, their Christianity is like a watch with a dead battery. It doesn't actually do anything for them, it never has. It never changes anything. It never stirs them to action by the message that it delivers to them informing them that it's time to act. They just keep it around because it's familiar. It feels good. It's comfortable. It's what they're used to. Right? Life feels a little weird if they don't have it. So they keep it around even though it's pretty useless. It's a watch with a dead battery. The book of Colossians knows nothing of that kind of dead watch Christianity. It knows nothing about that. Paul is telling us that Christ is the preeminent one, the king of all creation, the first and the last. And he says, you, believer in Christ, you, the saints, the ordinary believers, are united by your faith. You are united spiritually to Christ, the head of the church, the creator of all things. You're united to him. And he says, if you are united to him, you have died. You have died with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. Christ to newness of life. And therefore, Christ is not only saving you through death and resurrection, he is renewing you. He is remaking you. He is remodeling you. He is doing his patient work in your hearts to teach you and to train you how to now live in the kingdom of Christ. How to live as one who's united to Christ. And so there's all this talk in Colossians, put off the old man. The old man is dead. Put on the new man begin to live in accordance with what Christ is teaching us. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Christ has the power to transform the lives of his people and to make all things new, to make beautiful, God-glorifying changes in our lives. That is the gospel that Colossians teaches us. It's a gospel that has the power of Christ all throughout it. And if we believe that gospel, then the power of Christ is active in us. And there's no such thing as this dead battery Christianity that, that we just domesticate and keep around because it seems nice and we were familiar with it. And, and one of my prayers as we study the book of Colossians together is that we'll see the power of Christ in our own lives that there will be changes, beautiful, God-glorifying changes in our lives, in our lives together, in our lives individually. The power of the gospel is all throughout Colossians. And then secondly, also, here's the other major theme that Paul develops throughout the book of Colossians is the purity of the gospel. So there's the power of the gospel, and he talks about the purity of the gospel. A lot of Commentators on Colossians, they describe this book as being a friendly letter. It is, and it's a friendly letter. It's from Paul. You can tell he, he obviously cares about the people in this church. He loves them. They love him. Uh, it, it's a friendly letter. He does have some concerns that he addresses. But it's not like, say, the book of Colossians, 
right? You know, to the, to the church in, or Galatians, rather. Let me get my words straight. To Galatians, where he basically starts by saying, you know, who bewitched you, fools, that they've lost the gospel just like that. Colossians is a friendly letter, a friendly letter. This is to the saints, to the faithful brothers who are in Colossae. But there are still some issues. There's still false teaching in this church that's invaded the community of the believers here. And one of the very interesting things about studying the book of Colossians is this, that there's this false teaching. We're going to read about it in chapter 2 and we're going to study it. But there's this false teaching, but the truth is scholars talk about it and no one knows what it is. Some people suggest that perhaps the false teaching is, is related to a Jewish sect that advocated going back to the standards of the old covenant. Perhaps it's some sort of proto-Gnosticism that's invading the church, but, but we don't really know exactly what the false teaching was. One, uh, one commentator, Lucas, has an interesting theory. He says, we ought to give the believers in Colossae some credit. It's not that they were being led astray by some obviously pagan teaching from outside the church, but much more likely that they were being infected by some variant of Christian teaching within the church something that was very subtly adding to the power of the gospel of grace and therefore emptying it of its power. And he says it's probably not that there was some you know, massive heresy coming in from outside and taking everyone captive. He says you know, the believers would be on to that. He says it's possibly just some little twist on the gospel that comes from inside the church that we just tweak it just a little bit say, you know what would make it even better? He says we must not do that. And I think it's exactly the same for us today. Many believers today, we're not, we're not in danger from the atheists, right? the, the JWs, the Mormons, these clearly non-Christian and unbelievers. The greater danger to the church today, and I believe this is true, is that, that we will succumb to little variance inside the church from, from Christian teachers, but who take the gospel and who say, now let's, let's add just a few more things to make it really powerful. It's more subtle, which makes it more dangerous. These little changes. And they reflect the fashion of the times. They reflect the spirit of the age. It's the very cultural climate we live in. It's these things, they sound familiar to us. And yet, Paul says very clearly that not only uh, does that not work, but when you attempt to, to sort of strengthen the gospel, you undercut it. You end up emptying it of all of its power. The power of the gospel depends on the purity of the gospel. Look at the end of chapter 2. We'll just take a little uh, sneak preview of what is to come. The end of chapter 2. Paul is going to say to them, verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here is what he's saying. Paul is exhorting the people not to be taken captive to some of these distortions. And, and one of the things that these distortions all have in common is that they are marked by human additions. Additional rules, additional regulations. Uh, and, and these rules and regulations, when you look at them, they seem to make sense. Right? They, they, uh, they encourage people to stay away from evil things. 
They encourage people to do godly things and good things. And so there's a certain logic to them. And you look at these additional rules and regulations and you say, that looks good. That looks good. They make sense. There's no problems with these. But that's exactly what Paul says is the problem. They have an appearance of wisdom. An appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, even severity to the body, right? We look at these additional rules and we're like, ooh, these guys are really committed. There's asceticism. There's severity. But Paul says additional rules that go beyond the gospel have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's usually the whole point of the additional rules. How can we stop the indulgence of the flesh? And Paul says it's the gospel that does that, not man-made regulations. Let me give an example to, to try to clarify. The college that I attended was a Christian college. It was affiliated with a Christian denomination, one that had come out of the holiness tradition. And so there was a rule at our college uh, that dancing was completely forbidden. Uh, no no school-sponsored events included dancing. Now... I don't like dancing. Right? I'm, I'm not good at dancing. So this was not any particular burden on me. I didn't mind. Uh, but it makes a good example. My high school was the same way. We did not have a senior prom. We had a senior banquet because we don't dance, because we were Christians. But now dancing, dancing is not forbidden in the Bible. In fact, we have very good examples of believers dancing in the Bible. So it's nowhere forbidden, but if you've been in these traditions, you know exactly why they have these rules against it, right? Because dancing is, is, it feels worldly, right? We see it in a secular context too often, and we think that by the very nature of it, it could lead to lustful thoughts, all manner of immorality could follow from dancing, and so what do we do? Well, we see, okay, these consequences are clearly forbidden in Scripture. Lustful thoughts, immorality is forbidden in Scripture, so on the one hand, I want to applaud this effort to help students stay away from these sins. Right? That's what they're trying to do. I, I feel like I want to be on that side. Right? I want to be on the side of goodness and staying away from sin. However, here's the truth that Paul says, if you think you can defeat lust by not dancing, you're going to be sadly mistaken. Because that is like going to war against a powerful enemy and using Nerf guns. Right? You're outmatched, you're outnumbered by the power of sin. There is only one thing that is powerful to defeat indwelling sin, and that is the power of Christ. We think it's practical to add other rules, to add other regulations. Paul says that has an appearance of wisdom. It does. It appears wise, but it's not. That is actually has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's what I want. I want to stop the indulgence of the flesh. So I don't want rules that have no value in that. Right? I want something that has power. And Paul says, if you're going to experience the power of the gospel, we have to protect the purity of the gospel. We must not add. We must not subtract. We take the gospel of Jesus Christ as we find it in the scriptures. Now, now in using that illustration, I understand that, that that skews the discussion towards one particular tradition. Uh, that's a very you know, conservative tradition that those uh, denominations came out of. But the reality is, it's all across the spectrum that we, make these, that we have these problems and we make these extra rules. Right? It's not just the, the sort of super conservative side of the church that does that. It's, it's the entire church. The, the rules will look different. 
the unwritten regulations, the unspoken expectations of what a good Christian will be, they look different across the spectrum, but we all have them. It's not just the sort of old-fashioned conservative denominations that fall into this trap. And yet here's what Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 1. We read these verses. Chapter 1, verse 6. About the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, so it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and learned it from uh, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He says, because you received the grace of God in truth, the pure gospel, without these additions, he says, what is happening? The gospel is bearing fruit. That's the changes that the gospel is making among the people who at one time, like Paul, had been unbelievers, separated from God, passing their days in in evil deeds. But the gospel has come in and Paul looks and he says, it is now known. Paul hasn't even been there. He says, it's just known. I hear the reports that the gospel among you is bearing fruit and it's growing. There's changes that are happening. There's positive, beautiful, God-glorifying work being done in the people's hearts, in the people's lives, in the people's families, in the people's vocations, in the people's churches. The gospel bears fruit and grows. Why? Because they understood the grace of God in truth. And when we understand the grace of God in its truth, it bears fruit in our lives. When we have the truth, it comes with great power. And that's one of my goals for me, for us as a church, as, as families and individuals, kids, adults. My, go- my goal for us is to be able to look at us and to say in sincerity, look, the gospel is bearing fruit among us. The gospel is growing among us. Because you can look at us today and and if you had known us a year ago, you would see positive fruit. You would see impatient people who are growing in patience. You'd see unloving people who are growing in their ability to love. You'd see uh, tight-fingered people who are becoming generous. You'll see people who once had, had no love for Christ now willing to give of themselves freely, willing to be generous willing to be sacrificial, willing to to think about their own lives in a completely different way. Think about their own goals in life in a completely different way. Think about the whole world, the big picture of what, what does the good life even mean? What is the goals that we should be pursuing, the things that are valuable? We think about those differently because of the gospel which bears fruit in our lives. That's my... That's my goal for the study of Colossians over the next several months for us together as a church, that we will get to know Jesus more deeply. The power of the gospel is the power of Christ, and I want us to know Christ, to fix our eyes on him, to set our minds on things above, and to see and to pray and to ask the Lord by the power of his Holy Spirit that as we do that, the gospel will bear fruit. Bear fruit in our lives that as we focus on the purity, we protect the purity, we will also see the power. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks 
and praise for Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through whom you have reconciled us to you. You, through whom you have made peace between us and you, by the blood of his cross, through the perfect, atoning, and acceptable sacrifice offered by Christ on the cross, you have made peace, that we might be yours. Father, we ask that, that you would take your word, which is given to us, that by the power of your spirit, you would press it on our hearts. Lord, that you would cause these words to bear fruit in our lives, 30, 60, 100 times that which is sown. Continue. Carry on your patient work in our hearts. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.